Uh, glad to be here. I hope you're having a great morning. If you are, I plan to put an end to that. We're going to be talking about the end of the world. <laughs> but before we do, I just wanted to say I'm glad to be here. My name's Chad Myers. I'm our adult discipleship director. It's good to see you in the room, but I know many people are joining us online. It's like the last weekend of summer before school starts. And so maybe you're at the beach or the mountains. Uh, shout out to my family. I know my wife watched first service and she just sent me a picture of two kids watching this service. Um, that's pretty good because we have four kids. Kids. So if we're batting 500 on them being Christians, that's, that's why we had multiple kids, right? That's a lot of pressure if you got only one kid. Like, hey, you, you gotta make it, man. So we had four, so kudos to you too. Um, but I, I do know this as well. There are people, and I don't say this, uh, I say it with factual evidence. There are people all over the world that are tuning in to Mount Horeb. We heard people this week that people were joining in from Brazil, to uh, worship with us and uh, different parts of the other countries. And so welcome to you. And God is doing something incredible in and through this place. It really is a great church and you're a part of that. And so thank you for being here this morning. Before I talk about the end of the world, um, I, I wanted to say that sometimes we get this perception that the church is going downhill. downhill. The church is failing. It's weak. Um, people, more and more people are walking away from the church. And I just wanted to counter that for just a second because God is doing something in the global church and the church is alive and well and God is working. In fact, uh, last year, Gordon-Conwell Seminary, I uh, almost went to school there. It's in the Northeast, the great school. Uh, they, they gathered some information, global statistics on the global church in 2020, and they had some of these things to say. That although Europe is at a flat growth rate with evangelical Christianity, America's on the incline, and other parts of the world are on significant incline. There are 640 million evangelical Christians in Africa, and there are 604 million evangelical Christians in Asia, and the gospel is exploding in South America and Middle America. They described evangelicalism as a predominantly non-white movement. It's increasingly so because 77% of evangelicals live in the global South. And the number of Christians in the global church has more than tripled since 1970, listen to this, with 112 million to 2020 with 386 million. And there are projections that say in 2050, those who identify as evangelicals, there will be a billion. God is on the move, amen? amen. And though, as the hymn says, though the wrong seem oft so strong, keyword seem, God is the ruler yet. So though it's often invisible and organic and immeasurable, God is ruling and reigning. And it's important to keep that in, in our perspective as we venture into today. Let's pray together and let's see what God has for us in the book of Revelation. Heavenly Father, we need your wisdom. We need your insight. We need faith. Um, God, we need humility and openness to what you might say to us today. I pray that you would make my words clear and let them ring true. And Father, I pray that you would strengthen us as your redeemed community to bear witness to the watching world of your story. It really is a good story and you really are a good God. Help us today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. How many of you believe in a zombie apocalypse? Yeah. 
Some hands shot right up. How many of you believe it's so hard, though, that you have like a vehicle for the zombie apocalypse. You know, some of you know what I'm talking about. There's stickers on it and maybe a fire uh, extinguisher and an ax and a shovel. Have you ever seen these vehicles? I'm like, man, you are all in on the zombie apocalypse. I didn't see any hands shoot up. That's really good. I was ready for an intervention. For those of you fanatics, we love stories about the end. The box office tickets don't lie. Americans love to go to movies about the end of the world. In fact, think about the movies that were in the 1900s that have been remade, and The War of the Worlds and Mad Max, and then you had Book of Eli, and there's all this fascination with the apocalypse, like how's the end of the world gonna go down? What's it really gonna be like? And it fills up seats, and we wanna know. Have you ever thought about this? That all of those stories and movies about the apocalypse are actually very bleak. How's it going to end with zombies or with aliens or a nuclear war or a cyber war and maybe American or maybe the, the, the world if we're not going to have any resources and we're all going to die of starvation. It's all very bleak. And I wonder if sometimes the church, we don't take our cue from Hollywood instead of the scriptures. Because the word apocalypse this is where we get the word revelation from. This is the apocalypse of John. That's what the book of Revelation is called. It means to reveal. It means to unveil. It doesn't necessarily mean to destroy. So where is this story going? How is it ending? And how will God bring about the ending? So today, we are going to talk about eschatology. Everybody say eschatology. Very, very good. The study of final events of the world. And it's important to know when we think about the future, because that has implications for us in the present. What you believe about the future determines your behavior in the present. What you believe about the future determines your behavior in the present. So if it's all going to be destroyed, if it's just basically trash anyways, why not trash it now? You see? Um, if there's no real meaning to our nine to fives, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, and all of that, and this is just a temporary thing, and the only things that really count is being spiritual, why go to work? Why have family? You see, sometimes I think we take our cue from the wrong story, and we started off so good in the church, like Genesis gave us a great beginning. It was the introduction in fact, you see this four-part story through the scripture. You, you see the, the creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. And it reads a little bit like this, introduction, conflict, solution, resolution. See, Genesis gave us a great introduction. God, this benevolent God created the world as a beautiful world, as a great place for us to be. We are creatures of the sixth day. We are inhabitants here, and that's a good thing to need food and need rest and need leisure and need people. That's pre-sin. That's all good stuff. And God says, I'm gonna give you a royal priestly task. You are kings and queens on my behalf. You are priests and priestesses on my behalf. I want you to steward my kingdom Reign and rule over, Genesis repeats. Rule over, not other human beings, but all the non-human world and steward my kingdom of love, justice, and mercy to every corner. That's the introduction. And I would argue that the end should match with the beginning at the very least. 
But then the conflict came in. Adam and Eve said, our first parents said, no thanks, I don't want to rule and reign on your behalf. I want to rule and reign on my behalf. I would like to be autonomous and independent. That's why one of the definitions of sin is to function independently. That's why the goal of Christian formation is to be a dependent person. So there's this conflict of sin. And ever since then, not just with Jesus, but ever since then, God, as Bryce talked about last week, God has been set to work with bringing redemption with this whisper of a promise that someone will come from the line of Eve who will crush the serpent's head, although the serpent will bruise his heel. And God says, I'm a missional God and I'm gonna bring about redemption. And I'm gonna tell this beautiful, wonderful story. And in that redemption culminating in the cross, I'm going to remove the parasite of sin and I'm gonna restore humanity so that they can be once again, fully functioning, powerful agents, acting on my behalf, ruling in my stead, bringing about love, justice, and mercy. And all of that sounds really good. And then sometimes we get this notion that all of that's going in a really good way. And then at the end, God's just gonna destroy it and take us all up somewhere. God has business to do in the earth with the ground. There's a curse that says there's thorns and thistles and redemption has to at least match the scope of sin. That's why the cross is a lot bigger than we often make it. He's telling this story and the end at least has to match the beginning. I recently went to a Dermot Kennedy concert, an Irish singer, songwriter, and uh, he has a, a song that came out and it says this, better days are coming if no one told you. I'm here to tell you. I hate to hear you crying over the phone, dear. For seven years running, you've been a soldier, but better days are coming. Better days are coming for you. I know you've been hurting waiting on a train that just won't come. The rain, it ain't permanent. And soon we'll be dancing in the sun, dancing in the sun, and we'll sing your song together. We'll sing your song together. So church, are better days coming or are they not? What do we think and how does it affect us right now? One thing I want you to know before we dive into our text is this. God's intent is to bless and redeem the world and God always finishes what he starts. God's intent is to bless and redeem the world. Sometimes I think God's more materialistic than we are. I have to think about that for a bit. But God always finishes what he starts. Revelation 21, one through eight says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, Charleston. Maybe that's where Jesus is coming back, Charleston. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and he will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it's done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. It's not necessarily a bedtime story. 
So how does God intend to bless and redeem the world? And the first thing we see from this passage is that God comes down to dwell. God comes down to dwell. This is the movement of God in the scriptures, that God wants to dwell among humanity. He wants to take up residence where we are. He wants to move in to the neighborhood. It is not humanity reaching up to the heavens. It is heaven moving and being wed and colliding with earth. I see this. Let's reread one through three. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. What does that mean passed away? What happens? And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down. Things are descending out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is where? Now among the people and he will dwell with them. They'll be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. God's aim and intent has always been to come dwell among people. He created a garden. He fellowshiped with Adam and Eve and then they were banished because of their sin. But guess what? God wasn't done. He came down at Sinai with the law and said, I want communion with you. I've rescued you. He came down at Mount Carmel with Elijah and defeated the prophets of Baal. He came down in the temple when they dedicated it and was filled with his presence so thick like a cloud that they couldn't even preach or sing. He came down in the form of a vulnerable baby taking on flesh, becoming a dependent person himself. And John says, yeah, that's the whole movement of scripture. Why in the world would we think that it's about humanity reaching up or going up? It's about God coming down. He's setting up the kingdom here and now. Some of you have been Christians for a long time, but you're an earth to heaven kind of Christian. You work too hard. You're trying to build a scaffolding. You're trying to build a ladder. You're trying to reach up to God to meet and attain. And friends, you're exhausted and you just can't do it. God says, that's not the movement of the story. I'm coming down. Open your arms and receive grace and receive my presence. What does it mean that the first heaven and the first earth had passed away? And I would argue it doesn't mean destruction. Some people think, well, it's all gonna be destroyed. It's all trash. It's all gonna be destroyed in fire. But if the end is destruction, then our present state of affairs is what? Despair. That's what we feel a lot today. There's all sorts of stories going on about how it's going to end. And, and according to what I can find in the culture, none of it ends well. But if that's the case, then the present state of affairs is simply despair. I think we find something different. He says, the first heavens and the first earth had passed away. What does that mean? We don't get a lot from the Greek verb here. It's a pretty common Greek verb. It means to go or to come or to leave. In fact, it's used about Jesus and the gospels of Matthew to leave a town. He departed, he went away. So something about the first heaven and the first earth is passing away. So we have to kind of look elsewhere to see, well, what does it mean? And some of you say, well, the Bible talks about the second judgment being with fire. And so God's gonna, Judge through fire. And I'd say, I agree with you. But the context, when it talks about the second judgment and fire, is almost always in the context of the first judgment and the flood. And what's the correlation? Was it a destruction 
or was it a purification? Was it the same ground after they got out of the ark? You see what I'm saying? And you know what the symbol for fire means in the New Testament? It's God's purity. So what if rather than destruction and damnation, it's going to be restoration and purification and a radical cleansing of our own hearts and all the thorns and thistles and all the violence and all the hatred and all the transgressions. And what if it's going to be the same good ground, just clean? God is about restoring and redeeming, not destroying. He says this, this is what was shouted, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them and he will be their God. This is called to some the covenant formula. It's mentioned 25 times throughout scriptures, starting in Leviticus 26. I will dwell amongst them and I will be their God and they will be my people. This is gospel of John language and he tinted or tabernacled among us. God wants to be in our presence. God is not private, but he's personal. And he wants a personal relationship. And his aim is to build intimacy. And he wants us as part of our responsibility to be honest and open and genuine before him with all of our doubts and all of our fears and all of our praise and our joys and our gratitudes and our laments and our frustrations. That's how you build intimacy. And God says, bring it all. I'm a big boy, I can handle it. I want your heart though, all of you. But it means that God wants to dwell with us. He moves into sin-filled neighborhoods. What other choice does he have? And he says, I love you that much. Please do your part in protecting the covenantal intimacy. And I'll do my part to maintain covenantal faithfulness to you. Revelation can be challenging to understand because sometimes you're not sure, like, do you take this part literal or do you take this part figurative? And some parts are literal and some parts are figurative. There's often highly symbolic language that John employs to communicate the truth. There's dragons and beasts and streets of gold. Oh my. There's city walls with glass. In fact, sometimes I like to mess with my kid's head. Don't act like you don't do it, parents. They come home from Sunday school and they're like, hey, dad, we learned about heaven and their streets of gold. And I'm like, yeah, but are they literal or figurative? And they're like, John is saying something here. He says there's this new Jerusalem coming down and it's a beautiful city and he describes its walls as glass. In another part of Revelation, he says, he lays out the dimensions, 1,200 stadia. Do you know what a stadia is? Me neither, but I looked it up. It's equivalent to about 1,500 miles. Anybody fan of Colorado? Uh, One of you. You clapped earlier. No clap now. Okay, thank you. Uh, If you were to get in your car and you were to drive to Denver, Colorado, I'm just trying to put it in perspective, it's about a 1,600-mile drive. John is saying that's the width and the length of just the city, 1,500 miles in both directions, and then he says also the depth of it. He describes this cube. What is he saying? The book of Revelation was written to Christians who were living under the oppression of the Roman Empire. 
Rome was considered an antichrist movement at the time, very powerful. It was known as Babylon in the book of Revelation. Very powerful. It was the Pax Romana. It was not really a peaceful reign because if, if you didn't do what Rome wanted you to do, they would just kill you and subjugate you. So you have this world power with all their sensuality. And John says, you know what? There's another true kingdom and a true power that's reigning. Do you know how big the footprint of the Roman Empire was at the time John wrote this? About 1,500 miles. John says there's a city where a real king reigns and he's the one true king who knows what to do with power and he knows how to steward peace and he knows how to really bring justice and that's gonna subvert all the other kingdoms of the world. But why a cube? Well, go back to the Old Testament Go into the tabernacle. There's an outer court and then there's an inner court. And then there's a room, it's called the Holy of Holies. And then the Holy of Holies was where the Shekinah, the presence of God, the glory of God dwelt. And the high priest, it was such a sacred place that the high priest could only go in once a year and through all these rituals and rites. And they had a rope tied to him because if he didn't do it right, he might die because this is such a sacred thing. And guess what shape the Holy of Holies was in? A cube. And John's saying, yeah, like that. He's coming to be with us. But we'll be able to behold him and we won't perish because we'll be clean. And we'll be able to be fully open before him with no fear and no walls up. We sang it earlier, praise go up, walls come down. No walls in our hearts up towards him or anyone else. No defenses, no need for self-protection. That's what it means that God comes to dwell with us. And when God comes to dwell with us, he comes to repair and he comes to reorder. He comes to repair and reorder. Look at 21.4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Subject, he, verb, will wipe. Future tense, what? Every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has what? Again, passed away. You see that? It's gone away. It's a new culture now. It's not the culture of the beast, the devil with all its deceit and greed and death. It's the culture of the lamb. Perfect peace. This has been a tough year for everybody. More than a year. Everyone's lost something. Some of you have lost graduations, high school, college. Some have lost weddings. Some have lost gathering together for a birthday celebration. Some of you have lost contact with loved ones because of they're uncomfortable or maybe they're immunocompromised. Some of you lost people. And we've been touched with death. There's been so many deaths in many different kinds. And the fact that he says here, there will be no more death or mourning or crying and the need for the wiping of every tear from their eyes implies that there has been a transgression, that there's something wrong with the world, that it's not the way it's supposed to be. Please don't buy in to the storyline that says, no, 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 it's, it's all the way it's supposed to be. We just need a little bit more education and a lot of human will and a little bit more science. Friends, if that's the storyline, there's not better days ahead. It has to be the power of God working through his people for better days ahead. 
And we don't know exactly what all happens to those who pass right now, but we do know this, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. So if you've lost someone this year, stake your claim on that. I've always wondered how, how will he wipe every tear from their eye? Like, how will Jesus actually do this? And I, sometimes I think, well, you know, will he say something like, okay, everyone gather together. Uh, we, we've got a long time, but we've got a lot to do. So let's get together and bunch in close. It's fine. Bunch in close, shoulder to shoulder. And what we're going to do is we're just going to kind of, I'm going to wave a general hand of blessing over you and a general hand of healing. And I'm going to say a prayer. And then all of you, just all the tears and the pain and the tragedy, it's just gone, Okay. I don't think it's going to be like that. In fact, it says here that he himself will wipe what? Every single tear. Do you remember when Jesus blessed the children? He called them together. And what did he do? Each one, one by one. And he held them close to his chest, face to face. And he blessed them. I imagine the healing that's going to need to happen for the sins of the world might take a long time in the beginning of eternity. He says in Revelation 22 that there's the tree of life. This is Eden restored. There's the tree of life and there's leaves on this tree and the leaves are for the healing of the nations. I wonder if it's just not just God who's going to bring about healing, but if we get to participate in bringing that healing. I've had the opportunity to be a part of professionally mediated conflict resolutions. It's as painful as it sounds. When I've had conflict with somebody or someone's had conflict with me and we just can't quite figure it out and the stakes are pretty high, so we've had to bring in a professional mediator. We need someone there to kind of walk us through it. And I have to tell you, it's excruciatingly painful to sit next to your spouse and across from people you know that you've been friends with and to confess to your spouse and to them, I sinned against you. When I didn't get your back, when I didn't give you the benefit of the doubt, when I gossiped about you and I said this, when I betrayed you, it's incredibly painful. And then in the next sentence to say, would you please forgive me? And for those people around you that just saw you completely sold naked with all of your sin and your shame and your dirtiness to look at you and say, I forgive you. And they mean it. It's some of the most heaven on earth times I've ever experienced. And I wonder if we don't get to play a part in that process, in the healing process of each other, saying, you know what? You've sinned against me and we need forgiveness, but I've sinned against you and I carry a lot of shame and guilt because of that. And I need to know that you forgive me. And we all get to participate in this healing of each other and the wiping of the tears that has happened. My wife gave me a wonderful illustration and I kind of botched it in the first service. So she graciously texted me in between services. She's like, great job. And this. <laughs> so, so here we go. I'm trying my best here. Okay, sweetheart. There's a, a hospital up in Northern Michigan and now it's just a historic site. You can visit it. It was a state hospital 
for psychiatric patients. It was built in the late 1800s. This is before the advent of drug therapy. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to build a beautiful place so that those who were very emotionally damaged could come and receive healing. So they built it in a Victorian Italianate style. So even the architecture doesn't say, hey, we're just trying to get this thing built and cut corners and you know these people don't matter. It's no, it's a, it's a 1500s Italian style architecture. There was housing cottages and infirmaries for male and female patients. It became the city's largest employer contributing to the city's growth. They kept adding buildings and they added trees and beautiful landscapes. And one of the things that they did was they said, look, you need to experience beauty because beauty is healing. And so we're gonna have year-round flowers. And to do that, to survive the northern cold, we're gonna have to create our own greenhouse. So they created their own greenhouses and they had year-round flowers. And guess what? Even the most severely damaged patients, any type of restriction was forbidden. Straight jackets were forbidden. They could come and go as they pleased. There was art on the walls. They ate from fine china. They began to progress and they, they had a farm because they believed that work is therapy also. And they said, we're gonna teach you how to make furniture. We're gonna teach you how to farm, how to grow horticulture. And so they got cows. It continued to progress, to grow within a decade with pigs and chickens and milk and meat cows and vegetable fields. And can you imagine this little heaven on earth that said, you know what? These are broken and hurt people. And what we're going to do is we're going to dignify them by treating them with beauty and respect. And we're going to say, you deserve it. You have some deservability. How much healing would take place? I feel like that's a good picture of who we are. Sin cripples us in many different ways. We're spiritually stunted. We're spiritually damaged. Maybe we suffer emotionally because of that as well. And God says, part of my healing is not just gonna be me in my presence wiping away tears, but I'm gonna set you in one of the most beautiful places that you could imagine is perfect shalom. There's no sin, you're surrounded. And guess what? I'm going to dignify you as image bearers and treat you as you deserve. God, how would you be healed? How would we heal now? if we begin to treat others and ourselves with that same type of dignity. C.S. Lewis puts it like this, but if you are a, a poor creature, poisoned by a wretched upbringing in some house full of vulgar jealousies and senseless quarrels, saddled by no choice of your own with some loathsome sexual perversion, nagged day in and day out by an inferiority complex, does anyone relate to this? I do. That makes you snap at your best friends. Do not despair. He knows all about it. You are one of the poor whom he blessed. He knows what a wretched machine you are trying to drive. Keep on, do what you can. One day he will fling it on the scrap heap and give you a new one. And then you may astonish us all, not least yourself, for you have learned your driving in a hard school. Some of you have learned your driving in a hard school and you're really hard on yourself. There's no place for condemnation. There's no place for self-hatred. And one of the things John is saying 
is if we could just get a picture of the future version of ourselves, of who we are going to be when we are restored and fully whole, I wonder if that doesn't play a part in shaping us to become that person. So who's the redeemed you? Envision it every day. This is the redeemed me. I'm whole, I'm truthful, I'm honest, I'm me, I'm kind, I'm gracious. I still struggle, but that's who I am. That's who I'm going to be. That's my destiny. I live wide open, wholeheartedly, risking vulnerability, though I may experience pain, because that's who I'm going to be. We live in the middle of solution and resolution. We live in the middle of already and not yet. Some of us know this all too well. We're, we're already sons and daughters adopted, but we haven't yet come home. See, we're already made righteous, but we still fight and war with sin. We're already positioned in the heavenlies in Christ, and yet we still groan to have our final experience, the culmination of where the story has been going. How do we know? that God comes down to dwell? How do we know this is going somewhere good? How do we know that it actually has something to do with physicality in the material universe? And I would just say, look to the resurrection. The resurrection is the key. First Peter 1.3 says this, praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth, making all things new, starting with Christ, new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What is he saying? He's saying, if you want to understand, the whole story hinges upon the resurrection. And what does the resurrection imply? It gives us a living hope, but Jesus didn't raise up to a simply, purely spiritual existence. He raised up into a bodily existence, physicality. He breathed, he talked, he laughed, he ate fish. I said that earlier. I completely botched this in the first service at nine o'clock. I said he ate fish and then I said something about Chick-fil-A or Popeye's and that's chicken. And I was like, how did I, people were like, dummy. I was like, he went and ate fish, not chicken, but I have the chance to redeem myself right now, bringing restoration to all things. The resurrection is an affirmation of the goodness of the material universe. Not a condemnation of it. Peter says, this is our destiny, this purification of our bodies and of the whole world in a new heavens and a new earth. And it gives us this hope. And you got to have hope. So if there's no hope that the story's going anywhere good, then we sit in despair. But we do have a future hope, he says. Future hope is an anchor for the soul and a tow rope for sanctification. It's an anchor for the soul. It, it plants us firm on the ground and we can stand steady no matter the winds and waves and storms that come our way. But it also pulls us forward. We, we were on a, a vacation up in Northern Michigan like years ago. Our kids were little. We're sitting on the beach when our kids need to use the restroom. There wasn't a public restroom. So my wife says, I'm gonna get in the van and I'll go find one. She leaves her cell phone. All of a sudden I get a call from a stranger's cell phone. You ever have one of those? It's like, this, this isn't good. Like, yeah, hey, what's going on? She's like, hey, it's me. I'm like, I kind of figured that. What's up? And she's like, um, the van's stuck in the sand. And I'm like, what? And she's like, yeah, I thought I could turn down this one road. And then I turned down and it was sand and I got stuck in the sand. And I'm like, okay, with all the 
positivity that I could muster in the moment. I was like, I'll be there in a minute. So me and her brother went down and we saw the, the, the van and it was high centered and sand was just keeping the wheels spinning. And all we could find to get it out was like this um, old rotted wood that used to be used for a boardwalk with rotted nails. Um, and I didn't remember the last time I had my tetanus shot, but I was like, I think this is gonna be okay. And we'll just try to use this to get all the sand out from underneath the van. You've been there? No, you haven't. I was there though. And uh, I was under the van just in a swimsuit, sweaty sand all over me. And I look at her brother and I think to myself, man, I wish we had a tow rope. I wish we had a rope and someone's four by four truck and they could just come over and we could wrap it around the front because that would get us unstuck. And Peter says, because of the resurrection and because of where this is all going, we have a future hope that functions like a tow rope that says, you don't have to stay stuck in despair. You don't have to stay stuck in cynicism. You don't have to stay stuck in your spiritual growth. This is going somewhere. Get on board and let's move. It pulls us forward. It pulls us forward. As Eugene Peterson says, heaven is not a purple package tacked onto the end of the apocalypse to give a flourish to the rhetoric, but an immersion in the realities of God's rule in our lives that it does what? It has an effect on reviving our obedience. It fortifies us for the long haul and energizes a courageous witness. Because we know this is where it's going and it's somewhere good, that means we can obey more wholeheartedly. It strengthens us with endurance and it gives us a courageous witness. And there is similarities from beginning to end. The end is like the beginning. I'll close with this passage, Revelation 21, 22 through 26. It says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations, listen to this, will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. What does that mean? On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. There's this city with gates open and there's kings still, interesting, and the glory and honor of the nations being brought into the city. Most scholars look at this and they say, this is a continuation of what started in Genesis 1.26. We were called to rule and reign and have dominion and we were called to create and work, but that all got interrupted and inhibited because of sin. And most scholars think this is talking about what we will do in the new age. And it won't just be sit around on clouds with harps. It will be, we will continue to create. Songwriters will still write songs. Poets will still write poems. Architects will still build. We will still work. But now we won't be with the sweat of our brow and we won't find the ground resisting us so much because there will be no curse and thorns and thistles. We will have something to do. We will be the best version of ourselves and we will create from that place. And it won't be for our own glory. We won't be building a Babel. We will be bringing it into the new Jerusalem and say, look, it's for you. It's for you. And we'll sing our songs together. We'll sing our songs together. So what do we do? What do we do now? We are participants in breaking the curse. 
We are participants. We can start to live in such a way that ushers in the new heaven and the new earth right now. We can start to bring healing. We can start tearing corners off the darkness. We can start bringing order to chaos. I have a pastor friend in St. Louis and he meets down in the city with his congregation and they rent out an old theater and they meet on Sunday. So on Saturdays, they're surrounded by a lot of things. You can imagine what goes on. He shows up early with his little kids on Sunday morning, several hours early to do what? To pick up trash and they pick up cigarette butts and they pick up empty broken bottles and they pick up paper and they throw it away because they want to show that there is something to do with the environment and care of creation and that the people of God, this is the world God put us on and we can care for it well. Statistics have been linked to where there is less litter in communities, there is less crime. There's order and flourishing. We had a volunteer bash this Wednesday that I was here for. It was a beautiful time. There's over 300 people in this room and that was just a small fraction of those of you that volunteer to, to make this church an incredible place to be a part. But what it was, was a celebration of people who are participating in breaking the curse. There are people who volunteer in the nursery and when that baby cries because its diaper needs change, it's because the acid of whatever is in their diaper is eating away at their skin. So it's loving to that child to pick them up and to change their diaper, to clean their skin and to put on a new fresh diaper and to say, you are loved by God. They don't understand it, but they understand it, if you know what I mean. It's their way of participating in breaking the curse. We have people showing up before the sun rises here on Sundays in both rooms so that people can join in from their own homes so that they can hear and see and participate in excellent worship because that is how they are participating in breaking the curse. I'm a shepherd teacher. I shepherd through my teaching. This is my main contribution to the world to say this is how I try to bring order. This is how I try to help people grow. This is how I participate in breaking the curse. What are you doing? What are you doing? What has God said? Hey, this is you. You've got this. You step up and step out and you, you break the curse and do it well. There's great places to serve here at this church. There's great places to serve outside of this church. And when we live as those people, we really do become good at the road trip, don't we? We really get excited about where it's going and we say, God, I'm glad to be a part of this road trip. You drive, but I'll be a part, not just passive, but active. And then the watching world looks at us and says, that's a community that I think I might want something to do with. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your text. It's rich, it's complex, it's deep, and yet it's true and we can understand it and you've given it to us and you challenge us and you comfort us. And we thank you for it. You're a good God. and You care about us more than we could ever imagine. You care about our daily lives more than we could ever dream. You care about our hurts, our pains, our tears, our joys, our dreams. Father, help us trust you. Help us walk with you. God, may we be good road trippers with you. May we be inspired by the narrative of where this is all going. Some of us are 
sitting sick in despair. Pull us out. Tow us out. Some of us are numb. Help us to feel once again. Father, some of us are deaf because of grief. Help us know you meet us right there and you weep with us. You're a good God. We look forward to how your story is going to end. We pray in Christ's name.